If you have your Bibles with you, turn them over to 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. This is one of the more popular uh, stories in the Old Testament. In fact, a movie was made in the United States some years back on this story. Uh, it involves the most famous of all of Israel's kings. In fact, to this day, uh, if you were to ask an Orthodox Jew who was the, the greatest leader uh, in the history of his country from the time that they, they became a nation, and he'd go back to David as the great king that they still look forward and back to. The only man that would stand above David in any way uh, in the Old Testament would be Moses, the lawgiver who was with them at their birth. This story, we're going to look at uh, the 11th and 12th chapters, may get a little further, but I don't believe so, in the story of David and Bathsheba. And we want to read the events and see what happened. Then we want to go back at it and go back and look at it and see some principles that we can learn so far as applying to ourselves and, and to life at the present time. Before looking at this, let's note some things that has, has been stated uh, to us in the, in the Scriptures. One is the statement of the Scriptures that the law of God is perfect. Uh, Psalms 19, among others. And in other words, when it, it says that that law is perfect, it means there's no way you could improve on it. And any way that you would deviate from it, uh, there would be consequences. Uh, the teaching of the Bible all the way through is that God's law is inherently right. Uh, right to the, extent that, to the extent that you and I submit to it, we actually reap benefits in our life. And to the extent that we deviate, that we reap consequences in our life, that the law is perfect. It's like saying that uh, such and such is a perfect diet. If it is a perfect diet, then to deviate from it will bring consequences some way in your physical body. And if it doesn't bring consequences, then that was not a perfect diet. If you can improve it in any way, if you can take away from it in any way and still have the same thing, then it's not perfect. And so the Bible states that God's law is perfect, it's inherently right, that in any way that I deviate, that there are consequences there. It also states over and over in a number of ways that God's law is given from the standpoint of not robbing us of fun and enjoyment and excitement in life, but it's given from the standpoint of, of the, telling us the right way and the successful way to live our lives. In other words, the, the teaching of the proverb writer in picking up on the law of Moses is that if parents want to be successful in rearing their children, then here's the way to do it. And it says, if you do it this way, then you can look forward to this over here. It deals with the marriage relationship. And so if two people want a successful marriage, uh, this is the way to do it. And to the degree that you do it, uh, you're going to have success uh, in your marriage. It deals with our relationships with other people and will tell us that if you want successful relations with other people, uh, then to the degree that you do this, that you will have uh, good relations with other people so far as it depends, depends on you, that the law is perfect. Now, this isn't to say that if you walk through this life keeping God's law to the, the best of whatever ability you have, keeping in mind that none of us are perfect, that you're not going to suffer some consequences and problems along the way. Keep in mind, number one, you're not going to keep it perfectly. 
You're going to benefit from to the extent that you do keep it. Number two, you live in a world with five billion other people. And all of them have free choice. And so you and I have nothing to do with Saddam Hussein uh, sitting loose 600 oil wells over in the Mideast. But the ecology of, of our world is going to suffer as a result of that. The impact will be there for all of us. The consequences are there now for those people, and they'll be there for us. And so you may have had nothing to do with uh, some drunk running into an innocent person on the highway. And so you can be perfectly innocent and suffer, but still the consequences come about because of sin. Even though you may be the innocent party, somebody has sinned, somebody has broke a law in order for that consequence to take place. And so to the extent that an individual uh, adheres to that law, there's benefits to the extent that a community, a state, a nation, a world adheres to the principles of this law, there will be benefits or to the extent we deviate, there will be consequences. In a little simple story here, there's probably no better uh, teaching of this principle uh, than looking at the life of David. And there are other lives. David makes a very good one. Uh, David is a man after God's own heart. That's why he's identified when uh, Samuel lets Saul know that God, that he's rejected Saul and he's going to choose David to replace him. It already had been mentioned that David was a man after God's heart. That as a young person still in his teens and a shepherd, uh, David had already demonstrated his tremendous faith in God. He developed a faith in God. He made many insights uh, when he was out watching the shepherd. Uh, uh, the, the, what we refer to as the 23rd Psalm uh, was written by an individual who had experienced what was involved in shepherd keeping. And, and his observation was, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down by still waters. He, he leadeth me by still waters, I should say. And all the statements there that he depicts, he depicts what he as a shepherd did for his sheep and saying that God was, was doing for him. Uh, David looked at himself and he said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And in all those hours that he was out there by himself with the sheep, he had contemplated the, the wonders of God's creation. Uh, he made the statement that the heavens declare the glory of a creator and the firmament his handiwork. And so David, from, from looking at the, the creation, had come to this strong belief in a creator. From considering how he was relative to even his sheep, he had come to appreciate how it must be with the care of the creator for him. And so he has developed this strong confidence and this strong faith in God. And of course he's been taught the law of Moses from the child. And yet here we have David with that strong belief in God that strong knowledge of the law of Moses, a person who has already distinguished himself. And we see something here, and that is the fact that you and I, no matter what our intentions, and no matter what our knowledge, we live in frail bodies. Uh, we live in bodies that are, that are of the animal kingdom. It's our spirit, not our physical body, that's made in the image of God. And the physical body can serve God only to the extent that my spirit takes control. And when I take control of the body and I begin to make it do the things that are right and to not do the things that are wrong, then I can serve God in my body. But my body is just simply animal. It just simply has desire. It wants to eat. You know, it, it, just so it tastes good and it's feeling, the body could care less. 
uh, about how much nutrient or vitamins or fat or anything like that. It just sees it, it smells it, it looks good, and, and it wants to eat. In order for that food to do the right thing for me, my mind has to take control. And I have to say, hey, I need so much of this and so much of this, and I, I don't need any more of that. Then, then uh, the food can do good for me. Uh, that's true with the other aspects of our life. That The body is there. It has its appetites. It's when the spirit takes control that we serve God. Okay, beginning with verse 1. In the springtime, in the spring at the time, when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rebbeth, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof. Now, in Israel at this time, uh, they didn't have nice green yards like we have today. Uh, the houses were built with a flat roof, and so you didn't go out on the porch, you didn't go out in the yard. In the evening, you went up on the rooftop. In fact, the houses in that part of the world, many of them are still built that same way today. And so David goes up on the rooftop of his house. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, David had a choice right now. Uh, David is not only a married man, but he already has more than he needs. Keep in mind that although God's, and we see a principle here right away, God's law of marriage is one man, one woman, until death do you part. That's his law. But he's never forced it on anybody. And when we come to the New Testament, Jesus even says that Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you. In other words, just like uh, the law was there, uh, these people were not very spiritual, and God permitted them. But then as they deviated from God's law, the inspired people were recording the history and by the consequences of that deviation, by the time Jesus came on the scene, we'd be able to point back and say, hey, look at the consequences of living in that particular way. Now, turn over here to second, turn back to Second Samuel, the third chapter, and notice concerning David's uh, marriage situation at this time. Okay, in verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahimanon, of Jezreel. His second, Kilab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, daughter of Talma, king of Gersher. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephita, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, the son of David's wife, Iglah. These were born to David in Hebrew. Then flip over here to the fifth chapter and verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. More sons and daughters were born to him. And then he goes ahead and names uh, some of those born to him. So by the time that we get here, David has a plurality of wives. I can go back and individually count nine of them at this time. He also has a plurality of concubines. And we're going to see the consequence of this later on. But right now we have this one event. But keep in mind as, as David does this, he already has a plurality of wives and a plurality of concubines. Okay, David got up from his bed, walked on the roof of his palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David had a choice. Uh, David could have turned and just walked away, but he didn't. The woman was beautiful, 
And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah? David knows that one of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But David is king. He can pretty well do what he wants. And so he's up on the rooftop, and he's standing there, and, and first he makes the decision not to turn away. He looks down, and he sees the woman bathing. Instead of just going his way or going back down, David makes the decision to take it all in. It's his decision. It's just like the, the individual that makes the decision to go to some of the R movies or to rent the pornography and some of the things that's going around in our society today. It's there. It has the ability to do certain things to the mind and to this animalistic body that we live in. But we make a decision. We know it's out there. We know the construction of our body. And, and so we make a decision. Do I see it or do I not? Do I engage in this or do I not? And so David made the decision. And he knew that she was the wife now of Uriah. He sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. Okay. So a very simple statement here concerning the adultery of David. David, the man after God's own heart, the man that God is already weaking over some of his ignorances, remember that God's law, not just in the New Testament, but even in the law law, that God hated divorce. And God's intention from the very beginning was one man, one woman, until death do you part. Uh, remember Jesus in Matthew 19 is actually quoting uh, the Genesis account and said that the man was to leave the parents and the cleave to the wife. They become one flesh. What God had joined together, let not man separate. And so over a period of time, man got away from this. Moses gave the law. The people were so pagan in their thinking, so immoral that he didn't even try to bind that on them. So David is already living in a state, as far as his relationship to the opposite sex, where God is weaking over some of his ignorances and tolerating things that will be straightened out when Jesus comes. But there's a very plain statement, even in the law of Moses, and that was that adultery was sin. And not only was it sin, it was punishable by the death penalty. Okay, David sins and he's king. Now we begin to see what happens. Notice we said that the law of God is perfect, that it is inherently right, okay? That there's going to be consequences if it's deviated from, and there's going to be benefits if you adhere to it. Well, then what's, what's the consequence? We begin in verse 5. The woman conceived. So whenever there's an adulterous relationship, there is the possibility of conception. She conceived, and she sends word to David, and she said, I am pregnant. David sent this word to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite, and Job sent for him. Okay, he sent him for her husband. What David does, as the story unfolds, he tries to persuade Uriah to go down and spend the night with his wife so that then Uriah would be deceived into blanket, believing that the child belonged to him. But in Uriah, we find an extremely noble person. And so he comes home, and, and he doesn't go spend the night with his wife. And so David talks to him, and he says, Uriah, why didn't you go spend the night at your own house? He said, I can't do this. He said, the rest of the men are out in battle. They're out in the field. Their life is on the line. Who am I to come home and, and to go to my home and enjoy my relationship with my wife and all? I can't do that. Look at Uriah in contrast to David. Well, David takes one more shot at him. 
The next day, David gets him drunk. He has him over and, and gets him to drink it and gets him drunk and then sends him home. And he thinks, now he'll go down. And he'll wind up. And of course, the end result is he wants to deceive him. And he wants Uriah to wind up thinking that the child belongs to him. Even in a drunken state, Uriah still does not go to his house. Lays out in front of the house, will not go in. He will not take a privilege for himself that the rest of those in battle do not have. Really a man of integrity. Now David's really in a bind. He's committed adultery. The woman's conceived. Can you imagine all the mental anguish that David is going through now? The penalty for adultery is the death penalty under the law of Moses. And the prophets are like Nathan are there, are there watching all that's going on. All Israel is going to watch what happens here. But then it gets worse. One sin leads to another one. And so he tries to get out of it by cheating and deceiving. And so the idea then is to deceive Uriah into believing that the child is his. And so he hurries up to get him home. But it doesn't work. Uriah has too much integrity. What's he going to do now? Well, the next thing he does, he sends the order back to Joab. And he says, when you go into battle, put Uriah where the heaviest fighting is. And then just draw away from him and let him be killed. And nobody will ever know, but Uriah was killed in battle. So they go to the battle. They put Uriah in the heaviest fighting. They draw away. Uriah is killed in battle. What does David feel now? He, you know, it's, he doesn't just kill a man, does he? He kills a good man. If ever anybody would appreciate the integrity of Uriah and the way he felt toward the troops and Joab out in battle, it should have been David because he'd been in battle himself. Can you imagine the mental anguish? You know, the first thing that happens to us whenever we do what we know is wrong, the first consequence is we begin to feel bad about ourselves. We begin to feel guilt. We begin to feel anguish. We begin to feel stress. We begin to worry about all the various ways that it might catch up with us. And so the first way, we often sometimes say in our society, hey, he got away with it, or she got away with it. I guarantee you they did not. We're made in the image of God, and we've got conscience. And whether the law catches us or anybody else catches us, when we do what is wrong and we know it's wrong, our conscience gets all over us, and we feel absolutely terrible. Uh, there was uh, one of the programs this week, uh, we've used it before in many other ways, but a lot of articles on this, but one of the programs this week on the national news had to do with stress and said that docu doctors only speculate. Uh, they don't even know how much damage that we do to our bodies through stress. And our, they're talking about our society and the very stressful lives that we live. And they said that it's anybody's guess as to how many illnesses and how much damage that we do to our body in this stressful society. Uh, they gave, a, they had one couple they interviewed on there, and uh, they were rich with a big house, the fancy car, the whole bit, but they were also working seven days a week. And they made the decision to cut back and to work normal hours, make less money, move out of the house, give up the car, and go back to something that was far short of that. And they were both happy as a lark. So they were far, they didn't have near as much, but they were far happier. There are consequences from stress 
And when we do things that are wrong, stress begins to enter in. All right, now look at verse 26 of chapter 11. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. What about Bathsheba? What do you think she felt now? What about the anguish that she went through? Here she's committed adultery. Now, you know, if her husband was a scoundrel, she maybe at least could have worked out some rationalization in her mind. But Uriah is a good man. So when she commits adultery, and, and Bathsheba knows that David has tried to get her husband to come and spend the night and to deceive him and to believe him. Well, what if, Bath, what if Uriah had been deceived, deceived into believing that was his child? Can you imagine all the years that followed what Bathsheba would have went through in her mind? Having a child that her husband thought belonged to him, but in reality it didn't. And she had to live with the fear and the expectation that one of these days he might find it out. Uh, like when the boy gets up about 13 or 14 or 15 and, and he looks a whole lot more like David than he does Uriah. So what kind of anguish is she going through? Well, then, now Uriah dies. And so David, who committed adultery with her, has now had to take the life of her husband in order to cover it up. And so... After the time of mourning, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so now here you are, David and Bathsheba. The man after God's own heart, king of Israel, wealthy, had everything he wanted. Bathsheba married to an extremely good man. They make the decision to sin and to break a law of God. God hasn't done anything so far. Hasn't done anything. What has happened? All of the anguish, all of the stress, all of the worry, all of the problems, all of the fear that was going to come out in the open has taken place in their own minds because they know that they've done wrong. Okay, the Lord sends Nathan to David. You know, we can see something many times uh, a lot better when we're looking at the other fellow. We're, we're pretty generous with ourselves, and it's, it's easy for us to do wrong and rationalize in our own mind. I mean, we all believe, for the most part, we're pretty good people. So Nathan comes to David. He says, Nathan, uh, David, I want to tell you a story. He said, there's this rich guy that has all kinds of lambs. He's got a lot of sheep. He said, there's this poor fellow over here that has one lamb. But he loves that one lamb. And it's like a household pet. He carries it in his arms. He talks to it. It's the household pet. And so this man with all these lambs, everything he wants, and a poor man over here has just got one. But he loves that one. David had all kinds of wives and concubines. Uriah had one. But he loved that one. He says, David... A visitor, a guest, came to this rich man's house and, and he was going to prepare a meal for him. And instead of taking one of all these lambs of his, he goes over there to that poor man and that one lamb that he had that he loved, it was like a household pet, he takes it and he slaughters it and kills it and they feast on it. And man, he tells David the story. Oh, David becomes so indignant that he is wrong. He said the that man deserves to die. No problem seeing how terrible that is in somebody else. And we're just talking about a lamb here. 
David has killed a human being, committed adultery with his wife, has him killed, and then just smugly takes her in to be his wife. But when the same principle unfolds, dealing with nothing but a lamb, he becomes so indignant that he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David, and he says, David, you are the man. Verse 13 of chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but, okay. If you want to read David's attitude here, and by the way, we see something in David that is the reason that you're going to meet David if you, if you get to heaven. David sinned. You know, when we make mistakes and we get confronted with our mistakes, we've got several options. If I, if I make a big mistake, whatever it is, and you confront me with that mistake, I've got the option. I can acknowledge that I made a mistake. I can tell you I'm sorry. I can try to atone for it. Or I can become angry at you, and I can rationalize my mistake. What's interesting as we go through the Bible, we find both responses any number of times. What set David apart spiritually from a lot of other individuals who will lose their soul because of adultery and other sins is that when David was confronted with this sin and he thought about it, he says, I have sinned. And if you want to read the thinking of David, read Psalms 51. That's the prayer of David to God at this time. As he poured out his heart to God, pleaded for his life, acknowledged that he deserved to die, but then asked God to spare him, and he said, God, if you do spare me, I'll spend the rest of my life teaching transgressors your way. So on the one hand, we're seeing two things so far. God's law is perfect. David sins. There's consequences. But when David is approached by, for his sin, he acknowledges his sin. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't rationalize. He just simply says, I have sinned, and you can read Psalms 51 as he pours out his heart to God. And then look at that statement in verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. We see something there. Try to think of something more terrible that you could do than what David did right here. Committed adultery, number one. But then number two, he had a very righteous man put to death to try and cover it up. And if you get to heaven, you're going to see David because David repented of his sins. So on the one hand, I see the perfection of God's law. And I have it driven into my mind that there is consequences. When I deviate, it's right. And to the extent that I can follow it, I'll benefit in my life. On the other hand, though, I can see that God is merciful and at any time that I'm willing to repent, whatever the sin, God will forgive me. And so as we sit here and we gather here today, knowing that we all have sinned, knowing that we all fall short, it's comforting to know that our Creator is merciful and if we are willing to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge our sin, God is willing to forgive us. But the story doesn't end here, and we see something else. 
He says, but in verse 14, because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Notice what happens when a godly person sins. Contempt is brought on God. In Romans 2 and verse 25, Paul said the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. When people who are followers of Jesus professing Christianity in this world out here, when we get out there and we sin, we're a blemish. We're helping to defeat the very thing we're trying to promote. Uh, the people that we're trying to lead to a better way can simply now point and say, hey, it really doesn't matter what you believe. Look at him. Look at Jim and Tammy. Look at Jimmy Swaggered. Look at whatever uh, down through the centuries. Every Christian ought to have that constantly in his mind. That number one, when I sin, sure I can be forgiven. Number one, there's going to be consequences. But number two, that when I as a Christian go out here and, and really blow it, and people know that I'm a Christian, I hurt the name of God. And the best I can do is get out and at least make it clear to people that I have repented of that sin, that I recognize that it's wrong. All right, notice he says that the son would die. Let's go ahead now and I'm going to tell you the rest of the story and I want you on your own to read that 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th chapters. Go home and between services read it and I'll tell you the story. He also goes on to say, your son's going to die and he says, David, the sword will never depart from your house. And David, what you have done in secret, I'll do openly before everybody. The implication sometimes is that God in some mystical way did these various things to David. But that's not what happened. That would not prove that God's law is perfect if when I sin that God steps in in some mystical way and there's consequences. The proof is that when I sin that things just naturally happen because the law is inherently right. Let's look at the sword not departing from David's house. We've already noted that David has taken upon himself to marry all these ladies, right? Uh, David never saw an attractive lady he didn't want to marry. So he's got all these ladies and he, names, he has all these children by him. And he just takes Bathsheba and he makes her one of the crew. What happens? Well, we read the story a little bit and we find that Absalom had a sister by the name of Tamar. And they were brother and sister of one of David's wives. There was another one of David's wives and had a son by the name of Amon. Amon fell in love with the sister of Absalom, his half-sister. But legally, by the law, he couldn't have her. You see, they got the same father. But the fact that they've got different mothers means that they don't look at one another as brother and sister. So he has this desire for his half-sister. Amon rapes his half-sister. All right? After he rapes her, now we see the relationship between a true brother and sister. Absalom, David's son, by another woman, is the real brother of Tamar. Same mother, same father. Absalom, even though she's a beautiful woman, doesn't look on her the way Amon did. She's his full sister. He takes her into his house and he burns with hatred for Amon. And what happens? The story moves a little farther and Absalom kills Amon. 
And now murder has entered the household of David. And so as a result of having a number of wives and a son by one wife looking at a daughter by another wife not as a sister raping her and then David's son over here murders him and now we've really got a family situation with this man after God's own heart. If you get to heaven you're going to see David. He was forgiven of his sin but God didn't step in and remove the consequences. Well then we move further into the story. As David gets to be an old man and we begin to think in terms of who's going to replace David on the throne. It's sort of like, by the way, if you want to get into some interesting situations today, it's in a family situation where the man has been married several times and then there's death and you've got to divide that inheritance up. Don't you know there's some fighting and squabbling and hatred and jealousy and envy that comes out of all that? No different than David. He's got these kids by all these ladies. Everybody wanted to be, everybody thought they had a right to the king. David had a first son by any number of ladies. The end result is that David's own sons fought among one another. And before it was over, some of his sons would kill others of his sons. Before Solomon, the second son of Bathsheba, will finally wind up as king of Israel. David was somewhere around 40 when this happened. He had 30 more years to be king. All the rest of that man's life, he suffered in his own family and in his own mind because of this sin that began back with Bathsheba. He repented and God forgave him. But his way of life with the ladies, his, his adultery, the type of parent he was, as we look at David as a father, he was a great king. Apparently was a great lover to the gals. But David wasn't a great father. You know, the Bible says you train up a child in the way it should go when he gets old and not depart from it. There's no indication that David took personal interest in his young children. I don't know how he could have. He had them strung out over umpteen wives and umpteen concubines. And so how could anybody be a really personal with David? And so those children come up without a lot of personal attention from David and the end result, there's not a lot of them that turns out the way David. Have you ever seen that where a good man or a good woman has a child and if they don't take the right kind of interest in that child and, and don't help to mold and develop, the child may not turn out anywhere near as good as what they were if they don't do their job in, in just that one area? Let's go back up to the other consequence. God said that the baby born to Bathsheba, the first one, would die. The baby was born, it was sick for a period of time, and then it died. What you believe on this really doesn't matter because the event happened. The baby died and God said it was. I don't believe that God in any mysterious way took the life of that baby any more than I believe that God caused the rape and the murder and everything else that happened because of the type of life that David had set in motion. Can you imagine the feelings, the anguish, the stress, the shame, the inner turmoil in Bathsheba, the nine months she carried that baby? Knowing that she conceived it in adultery, Knowing that her husband, who was a righteous and good man, had lost his life because of her adultery. 
knowing that David had been rebuked by the prophet Nathan and knowing that she had to go then in among his other wives and they all knew that, hey, she didn't come in like we did. For example, Abigail, her husband died and David took her as wife. The others were all taken in some honorable sense. But Bathsheba has to come in among all these ladies as the woman who was married to a righteous man and committed adultery with David. And David tried to cover it up and killed him. And now David was bringing her in with the rest. I don't know how that woman experienced anything but anguish and turmoil and anxiety during all the time that she was carrying that baby. I wonder sometimes about some of the kids that we, children, that we see born and then taken from the parents after maybe the mother has been through whatever while she was carrying it. And then we wonder about service, certain nervous qualities and certain tendencies within the child uh, when maybe we, we need to do a better job at looking at what happened during the nine months that that child was being carried by that mother. So the baby's born and the baby dies. Okay, what do we see as we end our lesson? Number one, God's law, thou shalt not commit adultery, is not there to take all any of the fun out of life. It's not there to, to keep men and women from, from their sexuality and expressing their sexuality. Our sexuality is from God. But the law says it is best expressed for the man's good, for the woman's good, from the children's good in a relationship where there is one man, one woman, until death do they part. That that is the best way for society, for the man, for the woman, and the child to express. That kind of, it's the best way to bring that child up in a certain environment. David, plurality of wives, an adulterous relationship, and this godly man who had more faith in God than most of us and who really loved God and who had a heart that was humble and willing to repent. By the way, this is only one of several times that David just, uh, when he made a mistake, he would repent. But we see the perfection of God's law. It's absolutely right. And to the degree that I adhere to that law in my home, in my relationship with others, to that degree that there will be benefits. To the degree that I don't, there will be consequences. Now, we also see the mercy of God. And that is, that whatever mistake, we all sinned. No one of us had the right to look down our nose at anybody else. A sexual sin is a sin like any number of other sins. We all sin. If we are willing to repent of our sins and acknowledge our mistakes, whatever they may be, God loves us, Jesus died for us, God will forgive us. You can go to heaven and you can live with David and Paul and, and all the others. So the perfection of God's law, God's forgiveness. But when God forgives, he wipes the slate clean. Spiritually, we start over. But we also see the consequence of that sin is not done away. It's there. And whatever sins I've committed in my life, I can repent and God will forgive me. But the consequences are there. And we need to impress that not only in our own mind, but in the mind of our young people. I saw something on the uh, news the other day. This was, uh, I believe, the 2020 episode on Friday night. Did any of you see that, this group of people in Mexico? 
And this time of year, you know that the college people, this time of year, a lot of them go to Florida. And the way they dress and conduct themselves and things like that, I think the movie Where the Boys Are, something like that, was made on that episode. Well, there's a place in Mexico, Cancun, Mexico, where by the thousands of young people go out there. And man, if ever there was hedonistic living, it was displayed there. I mean, it, it even uh, made what I've seen out of the Florida thing look like nothing. In fact, that's why they go there. There's no, no rules, no regulations, nothing. Just a lot of 17, 18, 19-year-old people doing whatever they want to. Those young people, they're not all bad people. Most of them may not be bad people. But they have all the desires of the body. And they think they're going to go there away from home and enjoy a week of sin. Then they're going to come back, put their life in order, and go ahead then and meet this respectable person and marry and have a family and whatnot. But you know what they're not counting on? And man, whatever they do, they can, they can repent and God will forgive them. They're not counting on the consequences of those sins. The people that contact AIDS and all these other weird diseases that are out there, the children born out of wedlock, all the anguish that will come mentally from the various sins, what that woman or man will have to experience when they meet this person that they want, really want to marry, and that person is a virgin and they're not. Whatever they may do to their bodies from the drinking and the carousing and everything else, those, those consequences are there. And so for a week of sin, repent if they sincerely do, God will forgive them. But the consequences of that week will be with them for the rest of their life. Let's conclude our lesson this morning. If you're in our audience as one that is not a Christian, God loves you. Jesus died for you. Whatever sin you've ever committed in your life, based on your repentance, God will forgive you. Uh, Paul said, I preach repentance towards God and then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20 and 21. And for those people willing to repent of their sins, they can express their faith in Jesus. The way the New Testament gives us to express our faith initially is to acknowledge Him with our mouth as Lord and to be baptized into Him for the forgiveness of our sins. No power in the water. The power is in the blood of Christ. Baptism is a physical act that pictures a great spiritual truth. The truth is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Your death to sin through repentance your burial and death with Christ, your resurrection to walk in newness of life, and all of this pictured as you in faith are immersed into Him. If you're not a Christian and desire to become one, we give you the opportunity as together we stand.